Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Right now, looking at the equity markets here, uh, S&P just up slightly, Dow up about uh, 60 points. Uh, not much movement in here after this jobs report, but let's see where the action uh, might be. We uh, welcome our good friend, uh, Vince Signorella. Vince is the global market macro strategist for Bloomberg. Vince, thanks so much for joining us here on a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. What did you take out of the jobs data this morning? Well, I'll tell you, Larry is right, and he's stealing my thunder, the rat. I wrote about this about seven years ago when I was with the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> August is a, a seasonally adjusted month. Um, it often is revised higher. Last year in 2018, the number was a blowout, like 280-something, and then September was revised lower. So you, you kind of look at the August jobs data and you treat it like figure skating. You throw out the high and the low, and, and you get somewhere of an average over the summer. Let's just uh, get your big picture takeaway from the jobs report. When I looked at it, my impulse was, this is a choose-your-own-adventure jobs report. There's good, there's bad. Yeah. Pick the narrative you want, go with it. The Fed certainly will. They'll cut rates uh, come September 18th. The question is what they're going to do with it going forward. Probably they're going to be you know, watching the data, as they've been saying for a long time. Does this materially shift markets in any way over the next few weeks ahead of that FOMC meeting? It, it shouldn't. I mean, I think you were exactly correct. If you look at the private payrolls numbers, they were disappointing. So if you if you wanted to look at a weak jobs report, you could look at that. You could look at then uh, wage growth, which was substantially higher than estimates, and that would give you the positive narrative to the story. So there's, it's definitely a mixed jobs report. And as I said, August is a month I kind of throw out, and I think the Fed and everybody else in the long run will do the same. I, I think you also correct about September. Um, I, my take for the Fed for September is that they will do, they'll utter the draggy narrative. We don't want to stand in the way of economic growth. This will be an additional insurance cut, perhaps to keep things smoothing along. They've, they've shown us they could turn on a dime if they need to, if data changes. So there's no harm, no foul by cutting 25 basis points. I wonder September. what their messaging will be, though, Vince. You know, I think the, you know, an insurance cut, I don't think is something that the market wants to hear. The market wants to hear that we're into an easing cycle. Do you think the Fed will go that far? I doubt it. I don't think they'll change the narrative from their last statement that drastically because the economy and the data don't call for an easing cycle right now. They call for the potential that they may have you know, and you won't hear this realistically from the Fed either, that they've hiked a little bit too aggressively. If you if you look at the natural rate of interest, which Williams has put out a paper on, the Fed's Williams, uh, a couple of years ago, the natural rate of interest right now is some 40 basis points below the Fed funds rate. You can easily see a 50 basis points cut in the Fed fund rate just to bring us back to sort of neutral ground. And, and they have the room to do that. All right. So before we dig too much into the jobs report, we're going to be getting more on that coming up in the show. But I want to dig into the China news overnight. Uh, the fact that they are, in fact, engaging in more stimulus. And you sent out a note this morning that I thought was really important, which is China wouldn't be engaging in additional rounds of stimulus if they thought that we were anywhere close to a trade deal. Yeah. And I, I, I think that that is definitely the case. But I, I will... The caveat to that, honestly, is my sources from China the last two weeks have gone dark, uh, no news. So that sort of coincides with that, if you will, that I'm not hearing anything, which means there really isn't any positive news that I, um, I can take from which, which then raises a question, right? Can additional Chinese stimulus offset what we have seen in terms of a slowdown and that could actually uh, ameliorate markets or calm them? 
even without a trade agreement? Not, not really. A, a China stimulus is for their own domestic economy. It's to support their businesses. The hope is that uh, the reserve requirement cut will add liquidity, which Chinese banks will then lend to businesses. And it's a, it's a tax season coming up at the end of September. So if business demand requires capital, China wants to keep the domestic engine going because they know the international engine is not there with the tariffs. So they need to prop up the domestic economy. And I think that reserve requirement cut is to do that and that alone. And that to me sends a signal that they're not anticipating the international economy to lift them anytime soon. Let's bring in a good friend, Carl Riccadonna, Bloomberg uh, Economics Chief, U.S. Economist. Uh, so, uh, Carl, welcome. You're in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We love having you here. Wanted to get your thoughts uh, on the jobs number again, as we've kind of discussed here, kind of a Goldilocks type of report. What was your take? Well, I'm going to go on the side of uh, whichever bear said uh, things were a little bit uh, too cold. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I, I'm not going to say Goldilocks uh, for this report, although I know some analysts are saying that. Uh, and certainly if we look at the reaction in the Treasury market, uh, it also seems to have that uh, sentiment that things were a little on the chilly side here. So what's impressive... Uh, is that the economy is holding up as well as it is. So even the manufacturing sector, which is really front and center uh, in this trade skirmish and economic uncertainty and strong dollar, still managed to eke out positive job gains. Now, mind you, the ISM earlier this week fell into uh, minor contractionary territory. I think it's going to stay there for a couple more months. Uh, so the economy is weathering the storm, but it certainly is not immune to what's happening. And we can see that in the slowing pace of job creation. So while that headline number, 130, uh, not very impressive. Uh, we have to factor out uh, 25,000 census workers that were hired for the 2020 census to get a, an even better sense of underlying momentum in the economy. But when we do that and instead look at private sector hiring, 96,000, that that ain't Goldilocks, Paul. But you know what? I want to push back because honestly, you did see better than expected wage growth, which indicates that perhaps the labor market is tight and that we're not adding as many jobs simply because there aren't that many people looking for work. Sure, we should be getting some wage pressure as the unemployment rate is uh, plunging below 4%. Uh, I think the unemployment rate could actually hit 3.4% or 3.5% uh, by the end of this year. So things absolutely are tightening. But remember one thing, Lisa, inflation is a lagging economic indicator and wage inflation is also a lagging economic indicator. So what's more important is the activity-based metrics, things like the pace of hiring and the hours worked and the aggregate uh, income growth. Uh, and those were on uh, cooler trajectories in this report. How do you think the Fed should interpret this data? Well, the Fed has to look at this data and say, yes, the economy is losing some momentum. Uh, we're not at recession risk uh, territory here, but we're definitely looking at sub 2% growth in the back half of the year. In that environment, the Fed should be trying to take some of the steam out of the trade weighted dollar, which is at record high levels. Uh, and therefore, uh, they should be cutting 25 bips in September, October, December. In December, they should look at their Bloomberg screens. Uh, if the yield curve is still inverted, then keep those 25 basis point cuts coming right into the new year. Vince, is that what the uh, market is looking for? Just cut to zero, basically, on a monthly trajectory? I didn't say zero, but if 10-year <laughs> Treasury yields are at zero, they be, the Fed better go to zero as well. I, I think the market would like them to do that. I, I personally would like to see them get the IOER uh, closer to where the 10-year is to keep that yield curve a little flatter and not so inverted. Um, it makes absolutely no sense to have Fed funds rate 75 basis points above the 10-year the yield. So the market is definitely asking exactly 
exactly what Carl said. Give me that 75 basis points. Give it to me in a little bit at a time. We can't really handle it all at once because that'll scare the heck out of us. Um, whether or not they'll get that, that's a good question. I, I, I think they'll be a little bit more reluctant to go that quickly. All right. Well, we'll continue the conversation. Caro Kadana, Bloomberg Economics Chief U.S. Economist. Thank you so much. Vince Signorella, uh, Global Macro Strategist for Bloomberg. Both of you in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, it is Jobs Friday, and I think the uh, mixed report that we got from the department uh, would suggest that uh, the Fed probably has a little bit more ammunition should they decide to cut rates at their next meeting. Uh, to get a sense of kind of how this may play out, we welcome our next guest, Chris Liu. He's a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He was former Deputy Secretary of Labor under President Obama. He joins us from uh, Virginia uh, on the phone. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. What was your take of the jobs numbers that we saw this morning? You know, it's basically what you'd expect in an, uh, an economy that clearly is slowing down. How much is uh, the unclear issue at this point? And when you combine this with the consumer confidence numbers from last week, the manufacturing numbers from earlier this week, this is about what you'd expect. And you, when you look at the trend, not only in 2019, uh, but particularly compared to 2018, uh, this is a slowing economy, and, and so it will leave policymakers not only in Washington, uh, in Congress, but also in the Fed trying to figure out you know, what the next step is. So the headline number missed, but the wage increase beat. And I think this is actually really important because a lot of people have said it's been interesting uh, that the headline numbers of job creations have been as high as they have given where we are in the credit cycle and the economic cycle and given how many jobs have already come back to the market. You know, I'm wondering whether the lower than expected number paired with better than expected wage growth indicates a tight labor market getting that sort of sweet spot momentum that people have been waiting for. Right. You know, the wage growth, I think, was 3.2%, which is pretty good. But again, given the fact that we've been at a below 4% unemployment for, you know, most of this year, if not longer than that, you would expect higher wage growth than that. And I think what confounds us is why that hasn't happened. And it may simply reflect a changing economy at this point is that a lot of these low-wage jobs are going to stay low-wage jobs, in particular with a federal minimum wage that hasn't gone up in 10 years, and that the economy is just fundamentally different than what we have seen during previous economic expansions. It's interesting, Chris. I was just uh, commenting uh, recently that, you know, you walk down Main Street, USA, anywhere, and it's almost Every single store, every establishment has a help wanted sign out there. Um, It just, again, it kind of goes to that wage um, story. What do you think, given where we are in terms of 3.7% unemployment, would you expect to see wages even higher uh, in terms of growth than here? Well, I would normally expect to see that given everything we've always learned about markets. And the other thing that's sort of interesting is that labor force participation, while it ticked up a little bit uh, this month, um, it's essentially kind of been in the same band over the last uh, four or five years. And so people really are not coming off the sidelines right now to get jobs. And in part, it's because the demographics of this country have changed. People are retiring earlier. Um, People are staying in school longer. Um, But a lot of the traditional ideas of what it means when you have low unemployment, higher wages, people coming off the sidelines just haven't happened so far. 
Chris, I want to shift gears a little bit uh, because it seems like the jobs report didn't necessarily shift market expectations that much. And and speak to a, a Bill Dudley column, uh, a Federal Reserve, uh, former New York Fed president uh, for Bloomberg Opinion, where he was talking about how right now, given where we are in the economy, the Fed shouldn't really be cutting rates all that much because it could potentially incentivize President Trump to ramp up his trade war and uh, basically hurt the economy more in the long run. And I'm wondering whether you'd weigh in on that, especially because uh, the uh, chief economic counsel director, Larry Kudlow, is just uh, sort of railing against it on Bloomberg television uh, moments ago. So what's your what's your take? Well, I think, look, I mean, the what the president has been able to do over the last couple of years is he knows that the U.S. economy is strong and that it's, a, a, it's certainly the strongest of any country in the world that's resilient at this point. It's given him a fair amount of latitude um, in waging this trade war, not just with China, but with Europe and our friends in North America. It may turn out that he has much a much shorter leash now in doing that, uh, and it may cause them to rethink this kind of uh, scorched-earth strategy that they're doing and maybe try to cut a deal sooner rather than later. Because whether it's the interest rates or, frankly, whether it's the trillion-dollar budget deficits that we're running right now, there's not a lot of you know the traditional levers that we would use if this economy really starts to go south at this point. And so, um, I, I you know I'm not sure I, I can comment one way or another on, on Bill Dudley's column, other than to say that um, if the president thinks the economy can withstand these headwinds, um, he may be mistaken. Let's uh, sort of shift the question on its head then, which is if the Federal Reserve were to cut rates to zero, would that materially improve the labor market at this point in the economic cycle? Look, it certainly would help a little bit. I think the challenge we also have to recognize is that we are now, you know, nine plus years into this economic expansion. When you look historically, um, that's a long period of time. And it's not just what's happening here in the United States, but it's a slowing Chinese economy. It's Germany possibly going into recession. It's the uncertainty around Brexit. So the U.S. can certainly do a lot and the Fed can do a lot. Um, But in this global economy, you know, if other countries start to move south, uh, it's hard for the U.S. to resist that as well. So, Chris, do you in your kind of outlook, uh, are you discounting a recession in the next six to 12 months? Or do you think that the consumer can continue to support uh, a growing U.S. economy? Well, and that's really what has propped up um, the U.S. economy. I mean, we've seen business investment not certainly be what we expected after the tax cut. And with the consumer confidence numbers from last Friday suggesting that uh, people might be pulling back on their own spending. Um, Look, I I, I don't think we're heading into recession before the next election, but I I certainly think you'll see economic growth that's well below 2%. And I think um, the president will be running for re-election essentially in a similar economic time that he criticized Barack Obama for when he ran for office in 2016. So I think that will – I don't think we're heading into recession, but I think for the president's purposes, uh, that challenges his re-election bid. Is consumer spending a leading or lagging indicator from your vantage point? Uh, you know, that's actually an interesting question. I mean, you know, um, you've, <laughs> what you see now is consumer debt at levels we haven't seen since, um, since before the recession. So I think sometimes consumers are, it's a little bit lagging. They're, they're kind of spending money, they're taking out loans until they realize, wow, you know, maybe the place I'm working at is not expanding as fast or, you know, I was expecting this pay raise. So I'll say it's probably lagging. 
Um, but, you know, what I'm also troubled by is the fact that, again, as I said, not only consumer debt, but you see these statistics about 40% of Americans not being able to come up with $400 for an emergency expense. And what you realize is that even a period of low unemployment, a lot of people really are living paycheck to paycheck, and it wouldn't take much of a downturn in the economy to affect millions of people. Chris Liu, thank you so much, as always, for spending time with us. Your insights are very welcome. Uh, Chris Liu is former Deputy Secretary of Labor and Senior Fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center. He worked under uh, former President Obama. It took a couple hours, but bond investors have taken a look at the jobs data and said, nah, not so great. The economy ain't so hot. We're going to keep buying. Right now, let's get a view from one such bond investor, Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer for Fixed Income at TCW, joining us from Los Angeles. Tad, thank you so much for spending the time. First, I'd love to get your read on the jobs report. Does that sort of confirm your bullish stance currently uh, on duration on U.S. Treasuries? I thought it was a weak report, actually. I think that... um uh, when you look at the year-over-year change in the uh, actual non-farm payroll numbers, the number of people at work, it's at the lowest growth rate since, I think, maybe 2011. It was rising something like 1.3% on a year-over-year basis. Very disappointing. It's possible, of course, that it could get revised, but notwithstanding that, I think it, it's actually pretty clear that the jobs market has slowed down quite a bit. The um, uh, the rise in hourly earnings is superficially a uh, could be viewed as a as a positive sign, but in point of fact, when companies start to uh, pull back on their hiring or start to let people go, it's oftentimes felt by the lower wage uh, cohort of those companies first, and so consequently, when you look at numbers like the hourly wages and even the uh, average work week, those are not necessarily indicative of actually the underlying health of the of the labor market. But this shouldn't be surprising to anybody in our view. We do view ourselves in a pretty late cycle type of type of environment. And um, while employment is something of a lagging indicator, it's obviously uh, follows on the heels of very weak manufacturing data. And we have a manufacturing sector that both US and globally is either in recession or on the verge of it. So it's a, it was a weak number and, and um, not a big surprise, I, I think. So, Ted, how do you expect uh, our friends at the Federal Reserve to interpret this data? Oh, I don't actually think that they. Um, I don't actually think that uh, we we should take their their rhetoric at, um, at at face value. I don't really believe that they're that they're data driven, or when they say things like they are data driven, as they have maintained for a long period of time, they never say exactly what kind of data that they're looking at. They're going to ease. Um, they've committed to that course of action. We're going to get another 25 to 50 basis points of rate reduction. I think that that's all baked into the cake. But um, there is a there, there's almost an absurd disconnect, I think, between the both the rhetoric and the actions of the Federal Reserve on the one hand, and um, the uh, the the longer term understanding of what monetary policy is supposed to be about and for. The idea that the central bank is supposed to be independent, taking a long-term view of the um, uh, prosperity of the country, as opposed to responding to near-term blips in the employment data or whatever it is that they want to latch onto. But the the bias from the Fed and from central banks around the world, this this complete ridiculous nonsense of um, <laughs> how do you really feel? 
Well, since you asked. <laughs> well, so look, look. I, I guess that you know we, we could debate what the Fed is going to do and how much they should cut, et cetera, um, for 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 days, and we will. Uh, but I'm curious how much it matters. I mean, right now it's not as if monetary conditions are particularly tight. I mean, we're watching this bond bonanza right now. With any company that wants to sell bonds, can sell bonds, and they can borrow at record low rates. So I'm looking at this and wondering. Let's say the Fed cuts to zero. Will it matter? It's not going to matter in the long run, right? Just as you said, $75 billion worth of uh, U.S. corporate debt came to market this week. This idea that if you simply lower the cost of borrow, the cost of credit, that you can maintain prosperity forever, that's, I think, what I was (laughs) getting on my soapbox about a few moments ago. That's kind of the absurdity that essentially economic growth is a function of very deep fundamental factors that basically relate to having labor and capital work together on an ongoing basis to find ways to be more efficient and more productive over the course of time. Simply lowering the input costs of financing and doing it in an artificial way doesn't lead to higher efficiency. In fact, it probably does the opposite because it ends up uh, maintaining uh, inefficient enterprises over leveraged enterprises and activities that are probably supposed to be, even though sort of a politically incorrect thing to say. They're supposed to be swept aside eventually. Consumer tastes change. Things become obsolete. You need to you need to facilitate change. And one of the ways you facilitate change actually is through normalizing rates. You fail to do that. And maybe you end up in places like uh, where Europe and Japan have gone, which is just long-term inefficiency. And you get absolutely nowhere, which I guess was sort of the point of your question. So, Ted, given where we are late, this late in the cycle, as you mentioned, and uh, presumably a continued dovish Fed, how are you positioning your portfolio uh, at the current time? Well, I think that this is the point in the cycle where you're supposed to, first and foremost in your thought process, is supposed to be capital preservation. You're supposed to make your bones in the early and mid stages of the cycle when it's easy, so to speak, to make money. You can almost, almost anything you do in those periods is going to work out well. There's, there are beta trades, there's lots of dislocation left over from the demise of the last cycle. When you're this late in the cycle, if you've been fortunate and you've, and you've made your bones, now you're supposed to be thinking about, at least with respect to a fixed income portfolio, is how do I make my fixed income portfolio truly be a safe asset class in the late cycle. If you want to take risk elsewhere, I suppose that's that's perfectly reasonable and fine. But at least with respect to your fixed income, you should be biased towards risk-off type assets that would include treasuries and agency mortgages. You should be looking really carefully, in our view, at your high yield and emerging markets and thinking really if you want significant exposure to these asset classes so late in the cycle, a time when they oftentimes perform or they will ultimately perform very badly. So uh, defensive with respect to credit, slightly overweight with respect to uh, uh, duration. And that's, I mean, that's, those, those are two of the most significant themes. How much have you reduced uh, your high yield and emerging markets allocations recently? Um, not much recently. Um, I guess we've been on the soapbox that we're in a late cycle environment for a couple of years. So uh, we, we haven't we haven't had to adjust it because we actually moved to a pretty conservative stance going back a couple of years ago, and we still think that that's appropriate. Um, although we did add in the fourth quarter of last year, so we, with the uh, widening out in spreads, we did add to our high yield in our corporate positions. But um, as a 
as a general statement, uh, the idea is to be underweight the investment grade component and also to be very wary of the fallen angel risk. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the growth in the triple B minus sector of the investment grade index and the concomitant level of rating agency um, discretion. I'm not sure that's exactly the, the right. word I'm looking for there, but the idea that the forbearance, I think, is probably a better way to put it, that the rating agencies have allowed companies to take on levels of leverage that are not consistent with long-term metrics of being investment grade. Right. There are companies out there, right, five turns and more of leverage. They shouldn't be investment grade, and they won't be, basically, because right. the rating agencies will swing the axe on them when the time comes. Got it. Excellent. I want to stop there. Very good, Tad. Thanks very much. Tad Ravel, Chief Investment Officer of Fixed Income for TCW, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. Well, it is Jobs Day, and what better than to talk to actually someone who is instrumental in creating those jobs, and that is the CEO of American Superconductor, Daniel McGann. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Daniel, uh, thank you so much for being here. You came in, two thumbs up, we're hiring. Uh, so first, before we get into the fact that you're still hiring, um, what is American Superconductor? American Superconductor is a systems-based uh, technology provider that provides resiliency for the electricity grid, as well as for naval ships that go in harm's way. So we try to move power with a purpose. So for the electrical grid, I actually read the book called The Grid about the electrical power business. So I'm, uh, that was a Keith Grossman recommendation. Shout out to our old friend Keith. Um, the big issue for when people think about power grids is security of the grid. Uh, give us your sense of kind of where we are and how your company fits in there. Yeah, it's, it's a traditional system kind of works as a hub and spoke. So think about like a bicycle wheel. So anytime power moves to where you need it, there's really typically only one way for it to get there. There's no way for it to get back if you're starting to generate clean energy on the edge of the grid. And our company is about trying to turn that grid really more into a network like a communications network or a computing network. We have multiple point connection to multiple point built in redundancy, which increases resiliency. Um, either for outside threats or natural threats with, with climate change. Um, we help bring more renewables onto the grid, be it wind onto the transmission grid or be it solar onto the distribution grid. Okay. This is such a fascinating topic to me, especially because you came in, you said we're hiring. There has been actually a tremendous amount of hiring when it comes to renewable energy sources and when it comes to that entire industry and all of sort of the ancillary businesses that arise around it. I'm wondering, have you continued to see strong growth among your peers, competitors, et cetera, because this is a growing industry, even as people say that industrial production generally is slowing down, the coal industry losing jobs, et cetera? I think a generally answer to your question is yes. I think we're a little bit unique in that we have a very high proprietary technology that um, offers a solution today that's really needed now. We also are starting a new business with the U.S. Navy to protect ships. That's really where we see a tremendous amount of hiring here in the U.S. And across the spectrum of jobs, be it uh, people with former military service that, that help us in field service, uh, be it production engin uh, engineering, uh, be it uh, manufacturing engineers, be it support staff and accounting, we're, we've been hiring across the board. Tell us about the business you're doing with the Navy. What's the technology there? What's the goal? Uh, and just give us a little sense about that business. Yeah, so this is... Um, 
I guess the easiest analogy to say is if you understand how uh, noise canceling headphones work, you know, the idea that you're trying to um, uh, limit the ambient noise by putting in almost the opposite signal, right, and having it be completely quiet. It's that kind of stealth technology we bring to ships to protect them against minefields. The way minefields uh, detect a ship um, is through a change in magnetism around the ship. The Earth is a big magnet. Everything kind of goes in a certain direction. It's why compasses work. Um, a ship disrupts that field locally, which means a mine can see it or feel it as it passes by. What our technology is, it dynamically disguises that ship while it's underway so the minefield can't see the ship. Mines are a big deal. Um, Non-nation state actors can acquire them. Um, it's it's a main way to, to change or, or thwart movement of our ships at sea. It's something our allies are certainly uh, very much involved with in concert with the U.S. Navy. So it's very topical and now. But there's a future business in power, moving power, generating power either to move the ship or, or uh, make the weapons go. Electrification of the Navy is happening now and probably over the next decade or so. We're in a very unique position with a host of proprietary technology that we can deploy with the help of the U.S. Navy. Fascinating. How easy is it for you to hire people for this expansion? It's been great because we, we try to hire people that have a certain level of technical skill. Um, we're based in Massachusetts, which is where we do our manufacturing for our grid and our Navy business. Um, and we've been able to find a tremendous amount of talent. We've been able to identify that talent. We've been able to retain talent for you know our, our average time of service is uh, very much longer than our peers. So we're able to retain that talent as well. It really comes down to the mission of the company. Um, smarter, cleaner, better energy is something that people really can get emotionally behind, that they realize that when they go home to their significant other, the things that they're trying trying to do at work are helping humanity. So just looking at your stock, it's kind of a, I'm not sure how to look at it. Year to date, the stock's down 29%. That's the bad news. The good news is over a trillion 12 months, it's up 37%. Yeah. So what's, what, 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 what are investors kind of focusing on with your company and your stock? If you go back over, say, the past year, we've had, um, you know, go back a little bit. We made a decision to diversify our product line and expand our total available market. That's a, a mission that we've been on for a few years now. We're seeing the beginning of that to start to pay off. So part of the change in the positive inflection points in the stock have been around uh, delivering an order for this new resilient electric grid to do multi-point connection throughout the grid, delivering not one but two ship orders for this new ship protection system. So this is a company that's been a lot about a dream and a, and a vision for a long time. We're now starting to pay that dream off into uh, growth and, and uh, profit. We actually uh, were positive operating cash flow for um, two, two of the four quarters last year. Dan, again, thank you so much for joining us. Dan is the CEO of American Superconductor, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio, uh, American Superconductor, stock symbol AMSC, uh, on your terminal. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.